0: Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. As listeners of this podcast, you're aware that in the last couple years, conversation around basic income has really surged. There's, there's more interest and more discussion on the topic. People are starting to think more about what are the policy steps that might move us in that direction. But basic income is not a new concept in the U.S. We've talked a little bit about some of the efforts in the 60s and 70s uh, to pass a negative income tax at that point. But even more recently than that, there's been a lot of foundational work that's been happening that's actually really set us up for, for the moment that, that we've entered in, in just the past couple of years. And
1: so today we are joined by Carl Leiderquist. He is a professor of economics at University of Georgetown, Qatar, also the co-founder of the U.S. Basic Income Guarantee Network, or U.S. Big. Co-chair of Basic Income Earth Network and the co-founder of Basic Income News. Welcome, Carl. Good to be here. So, what first got you interested in the basic income?
2: Well, uh, uh, it's a somewhat embarrassing to say, but uh, when I was 15 years old, or right about the time of my 15th birthday, it was an episode of Milton Friedman's television show, Free to Choose, where he talked about. He talked about one episode that was entirely dedicated to a guaranteed income as a better approach to poverty and uh, he thought of this as sort of a, a sort of a uh part of an otherwise streamlining of the welfare system and uh, i didn't end up signing on with Wil- milton Friedman's whole libertarian sort of ideology but this idea that was something is that if you really want to help the poor stop judging them, stop telling them what to do, respect them and say, everyone's needs need to be met. Everyone has a need for food, shelter, clothing, and a few other basic items. And they also need to decide how to get those in the kind of market economy that we should live in. We shouldn't be judging people. We should be helping everybody if you really care about a more equal and more just society.
0: Carl, you're one of the founders of U.S. That. United States Basic Income Guarantee Network, which was started back in 1999. Can you tell us what starting the organization was like and how it's developed over time?
2: Sure. After I became interested in basic income when I was 15 years old, and a high school freshman, I had to go through high school, college, I worked for a few years, and so didn't do any work on it. And then went to graduate school, didn't do any work on it for a long time while I was doing all the things. But when I was thinking about social justice, I was very much my support for it. It became really central to my notion of what a just society means. And in 1996, Michael Lewis, Pam Donovan, and I were arguing about social justice. They were all graduate school students at the City University of New York, or just finishing. We were arguing about social justice. And we said, well, what, what is it we can agree on? What, what should be the next step to make this a much more just society? And the thing that we could agree on was basic income or some form of guaranteed income. So we decided to write a paper on it. And Pam Donovan en- ended up doing other work and, uh, and never has never really worked on basic income. But Michael Lewis and I have been working on basic income on and off or uh, ever since. And uh, we co-wrote a paper then that was actually not published for years later but we co-wrote it and um, then I learned about after writing about this and starting another paper on basic income I learned about the basic income earth network that had been going on for 12 years at the 10 or 12 years at this point so in 1998 I uh, attended my first European network conference it was called at the time and and uh, I wanted to join, but they said, well, it's a European organization. What you really need is for people in other other parts of the world to start similar organizations over there. So I went back, I talked to Michael Lewis and some people that I'd met in the basic income movement at the time, which were Charles Clark, Fred Block, uh, Eric Olin Wright. And um, in December of 1999, we all met together and decided that it was a good time to start an organization so uh, i think it was six of us at that initial meeting at the kiev diner in uh, new york city we started the organization um and uh we started having weekly seminars in new york city or monthly seminars which weren't that well attended but in 2002 we were able to have our first uh conference and that was very well attended that was about 150 people we found that actually there was a lot of latent support for basic income across the United States, but there had never been a forum for people to talk to each other. So U.S. Big sort of created that forum. Uh, I don't know that U.S. Big can take any credit for this big increase in discussion we've had over recent years, but that's how we got started. And you can see it grew very gradually for the first 10 years. But then in the last, since about in the last five years or so, it's really been taking off. Um, all around the country and in the United States where some of the politics are so difficult for it.
1: So these days, a lot of people have heard of the basic income, and you can bring it up without raising too many eyebrows. Can you give us a sense of what it was like to be talking about this in the late 90s and early 2000s?
2: Oh, yeah, it was, um, and I go, I go back to the 80s. So it was really out of the mainstream. As the 80s war and 90s wore on, fewer and fewer people knew what you were talking about when you brought it up. At least if you said guaranteed income in the early 80s, people might know it from the movement in the 60s and 70s but as time wore on fewer people were knowing about it so you're you're interested in this idea and it seems like fewer fewer people are interested in it and in the late 90s and the early 2000s it also it, it seemed like uh it it wasn't a movement it was it was a policy and there were people who were writing and talking about it but it didn't feel like a movement because there was no following and there were so few people involved it seemed like Everybody who was interested in basic income had written a book on it. Uh, there were that few people. And when you'd bring it up to outsiders, a lot of people would answer these things says, Well, that'll never happen, so we've got to do something else uh, that's more that, that's more friendly. And even inside the movement, it was different, it was very different than it is now. There was very little activism. There were activists, but most of the activists were writers. All they did was write because there weren't enough people to get out there on the street to actually do activism. And many of the supporters were looking at what's something that moves sort of kind of in the direction of basic income to get people into this, into this idea. What's a policy like that that we could do? Um, wh- whereas other people were just writing about basic income in the abstract and being very uh, divorced from practical policy. And now that's all different. Now you have activists who are working for it, and you have people that are talking about moving to basic income directly, not these tiny little baby steps. And it's actually um, basic income, a full-on basic income, enough to live on, is what's really exciting people today more than these these little steps towards it, which we thought we had to do 10 or 20 years ago to make it politically palatable. So
0: any conversation with particularly with someone who's not familiar with the idea of basic income, one of the first critiques that comes up is cost. What would be the price tag in providing everyone with a full basic income? Now, you recently published what you called back-of-the-envelope calculations on a basic income in the United States. And one distinction that you made sure to emphasize was the difference between the gross cost and the net cost of a basic income. Can you explain that distinction and why it's important?
2: Sure. First, I'll give you the bottom line. My back of the envelope calculation for the United States is $539 billion a year, which is about a quarter of our total transfer spending, about 14% of the federal budget, and about 2.95% of GDP. So actually, actually quite small. And I would expect that to be comparable in other countries. If You got another country that is about as rich as we are and about as unequal as we are, the cost should be in terms of GDP should be about the same. If you uh, get a country that's a little more equal already, the cost will be lower. If you get a country that's a little, a, a little less wealthy than the United States is, the cost will be higher. Now, uh, people, Often think that it's way more expensive. I just saw Pavlina Chernova, who's often a, a, a good economist, uh, make this same mistake that so many other people have made of grossly exaggerating the cost. She said it would cost 20 percent of GDP, uh, which is uh, which is more than six times. What I'm estimating, what she's doing there, and the mistake in the OECD made this mistake in a recent report, a a lot of people have made this mistake, is that they think the cost of basic income is the amount of basic income times the population. If you do that for the model that I'm talking about, which is $12,000 per person per adult and $6,000 per children, that's going to be, uh, I don't have the figure right in front of me, but something in the area of trillions of dollars. Uh, Let's see, I think it's over $3 trillion is what it was. Um, And that is an enormous exaggeration of how much it costs. That is not what it costs. And let me try to explain why it's different, okay? Uh, It's because a universal program involves giving people money and taking back money at the same time money to the same people at the same time now some of it also involves giving money from people uh to a tar- to other people that's the real cost and that's a targeted program only gives money to some it takes from some gives to another but do- does not give back to the people that are contributing and most of our programs right now are targeted so let me try to explain the difference the um In a targeted program, the government says to you, "Okay, we're going to take a dollar out of your bank account and we're going to put in this other person's bank account. What's the cost of that? Well, obviously, one dollar. You took a dollar out of my bank account. I have one dollar less than I used to have. That's the cost to me. Now, if the government then says we're going to take one dollar out of your bank account and give it right back to you. How much does that cost you well actually nothing because they can do that electronically they take a dollar out they put it in they take a dollar out and call it taxes put it back in and call it basic income that costs you nothing so the added cost of the added cost of making it universal rather than target is no additional cost now um and that needs to be considered because that person, if you that person still has the same amount of dollars, all of those net contributors who are receiving basic income, p- paying for it, but also paying for it, they have the same amount of dollars that that basic income that they paid for themselves. They, all, they also have those dollars. So if you want to tax those dollars and use it for something else, it's still there or you want it to leave it to that person to spend. It's still there for them. It is still there for other uses. So it is not a cost. The cost is how much do you take from the net contributors and how much do you give to the net recipients? That's the cost. That's the net redistributive effect. You got to take that and add, you got to take that and add the, um, the administrative cost to figure out what that is. So to find that amount, you've got to say, well, what is the rate at which we're going to tax this back? Um, and I used a rate of 50% on a dollar, largely just because that was, that was an easy one to, to calculate. And I got some data from this uh, publicly available on the website of the Census Bureau. Got some data from then about income by increments of 5,000 and looked how a basic income of $12,000 for adult, $6,000 for a child, and a marginal tax rate of 50% would affect would affect, uh, people in different, uh, different amounts. The net distributive effect, we find that the typical family, depending on family size are going to be net recipients up to about $55,000. And the total amount that those people are going to get on net after receiving their basic income and paying their taxes, because they're paying a lot of their taxes themselves. The total amount that they are going to receive is of $535, and I figured if the administration cost is comparable, uh, $535 billion, sorry. Uh, If it's comparable to Social Security, that'll be $539 billion total. Um, So that is how much it costs. That's how much more in taxes the net payers have to pay in order to make this program a balanced budget program
1: yeah that's striking how how different that is from the standard uh, people times money calculation
2: yeah which is not meaningful and every time you hear that you have to tell people that is not meaningful and that is easily six to eight times the cost of an actual basic income and i also you might be interested in some of my uh some of my key findings from this report
1: yeah i was just about to ask you about that why don't you say a bit more about those
2: Okay, so with that method of calculating, um, I found out that this would reduce the official poverty rate from 13.5 percent to zero percent. That's eliminating poverty for 43.1 million people, including 14.5 million children. Now uh, it's actually a little more than you need to eliminate poverty because I was a, a little generous in saying. Uh, I instead of making it right at the poverty line, uh, I made it about right at the poverty line for adults. This is with 2015 data. I made it a little more than you need to get a child out of poverty if they're living with an adult. And it's also for two parent, for two adults living together, it gets them well above poverty. Also, the average net beneficiary of this UBI is a family of about two people. These averages always end up coming up with something like three point five one people or 2.2 people or something. But we're talking about a family of about two people making about $27,000 a year total. The family's net benefit from the UBI would be nearly $9,000. After giving them the UBI and subtracting the taxes on their private income, they're better off by $9,000, raising their after-tax income to $36,000. So when you think of UBI, people are always saying, oh, this goes to those lazy rabble. Well, actually, no. The typical recipient is – a family of two people with an income of $27,000 per year. That's the working poor. That's the people that everybody says they want to help. And it raises their income to $36,000 a year. So it is very, a very significant uh, benefit for, uh, for, uh, for people, anyone really in the lower end of the uh, income distribution. Also, I found if you want to lower the marginal tax rate um, to, say, 35 percent, that will increase the cost to $901 billion. Um, and in, if you want to keep the marginal tax rate the same at 50 percent, but increase it, make it a more generous program, because the official poverty rate is not is, uh, is actually rather low, a UBI of $20,000 per adult and $10,000 per child will cost 1.86 sorry, $1.816 trillion per year. That's more expensive, but that's still less than 10% of GDP. That's also very doable. And, uh, and I think that's what, that's what I really support. I mean, I would think the smaller one would be a step in the right direction, but a really generous UBI that people can live on and not be, fear that they ever have to even be close to poverty is what we need in this country. So
0: other than the net versus gross cost of of basic income. Can you talk about some of the common misconceptions that you've encountered over time when you see other people talking about or evaluating the idea of basic income policy?
2: That is definitely the biggest one. People thinking that it is far more costly than it actually is. Probably the second one is something that I, I hit on when I was talking before, that they think it is something for people who don't work. People get it whether or not they work. But with these more generous versions of the program, we're talking about net recipients being about half of the population or sometimes more. So this is something that is not about the poor. It is about uh, everyone in the, in the lower half of the working population. And it raises their pay directly by giving them a net subsidy after the taxes they pay and the basic income they receive. Another way that it helps the people even beyond that into the net recipient range is that it puts them in a better bargaining position. This is good for everyone who works for a living, everyone who needs to go and get a job, because they're now in a position where they don't have to take the job. They, they take the job if it has good pay and good working conditions and it's environment they want to do. That gives people leverage to command a higher wage in the private market. So this could spread the benefits of this well up into the middle class, well, well up into professional workers who are Uh, net payers to this. Everyone who has to work for a living, this this is good for. It's not about some dichotomy between workers and non-workers. UBI is quite the opposite. It's about putting everyone on equal footing while they enter the market, not putting the children of the rich in the point where they don't have to work and the children of the poor have to work for them.
1: So as someone who has spent a career studying and writing about the basic income, are there uh, effects that you've come across or, or conclusions you've come across from studies that are not what one might expect.
2: Yes, there are actually quite a few in different studies. The negative income tax experiments that were done in the United States and Canada in the 1960s and 70s were widely were widely misunderstood because people focused on just well, how much did the poor work? Did we make those poor work as much as we do and everything? As if the poor are are already working the right amount when they have to work two or three jobs to keep themselves afloat. Um, that was the focus. But actually, you found out if you look at that that to the, that extent is a side effect. Whether uh, what it affects on work, what you're trying to do with basic income is make people better off. And they found that people were better off in really important ways. That people were healthier. That you had low incidence of low birth weight babies. You had a decrease in. Uh, infant mortality, that you had students performing better in schools, low income students performing better in schools and staying in school longer. This something has been like the holy grail of education policy because trying to affect really poor students with direct, edu- in the edu- how they perform in education with direct education interventions, turns out to be really hard. Can we give them more tutors? Can we give them more time in school? Can we give them an after-class program? It's really hard to get these things to work. But you find out the reason they're performing poorly is because their families are so poor. If you're not well-fed, clothed, and housed, it's really hard to do well in school. Big surprise. But the negative income tax experiments showed that this worked. And in Canada, where they gave an entire town Uh, um, uh, 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 something like a basic income, a form of guaranteed income. When the entire town had it, they found that there was a decrease in spousal abuse and a decrease in people admitting uh, uh, psychiatric emergencies at the local hospital because the stress of poverty makes you Insane. It is it is a very it is the it is a big cause of, of poor mental health and it's a big cause of aggression in our society. People who whose needs aren't met tend to be more aggressive. Now there have also been interesting results in experiments done in vastly different countries. Right now, there's an experiment getting started in Canada and one already underway in Finland. Those are fairly similar to the US, and we might expect some similar results, but there's also been studies in in Namibia in Uganda and in India. And these have found some interesting results that in these countries, not only do you have positive effects on health and school attainment and those kind of things that we're trying to do, but you also get positive effects on work. You actually find that people work more after they have the basic income than less. Now, in a wealthier country, you're less likely to find that and and where our poor are not as desperately poor. And that's what was found in, in the U.S. and Canada. However, in countries where people are really desperately poor, living on less than a dollar a day, their constant struggle is, how do I eat today? And this makes it really hard to plan, well, what kind of job am I going to get in the long run? How am I going to build my skills? I'm too busy trying to find food for me and my family today to build my skills. But when they have something secure, they have, and they're, they know that their family is going to be fed tonight, you find that they have time to build their skills, and you find that years on that the people who receive the basic income are working more and getting paid more because they have this chance to build their skills.
1: That was Carl Weiderquist, professor of economics
0: at the University of Georgetown, Qatar on the Basic Income Podcast. So I do think Carl's point about cost is really important here. Oftentimes when talking to people about basic income, the cost comes up early in the conversation and it can really shut it down. If people think that we're talking about doubling the size of our federal budget to pay for a basic income, they just see it as a complete non-starter. And having this clear and compelling explanation for how basic income, how the actual cost is really a fraction of that, it's going to make it so much easier to to make that case to to folks who who are skeptical for that reason. Right, and once you get that point through that this isn't,
1: you know, like doubling the size of the federal budget more or less, uh, it's then when you start to think about the benefits, you know, most obviously ending poverty in the United States, which is quite a nice benefit, but also those less intuitive ones that uh, have come out of the studies in, in Canada and other places about, you know, he mentioned domestic violence rates going down, education rates going up, that kind of things. The, it really starts to feel like a no-brainer at
0: the net cost. And we've mentioned this a couple times before, but I, I do think it's important to reiterate. When talking about cost, I, I, I think whether you're talking about 500 billion or 3 trillion, people think, "Oh, like, do we have the money for that?" And the answer is yes, unequivocally yes. If you look at the growth of our economy in recent decades, it has grown so much. We have so much more wealth. The money is there for this. There is the possibility of doing this at the federal level. It's just a question of political will. Yeah, one thing I I tell people is step one is just to decide that we
1: want this. Like we can, if we make it a priority, we can absolutely do it. It's just a matter of making that commitment. Uh, I also thought it was really insightful to hear of you know, the, the history of basic income discussions in the US and how people knew more about this in the 80s than in the 90s. And it makes sense because it was a, you know, a policy discussion in the 70s. and that kind of faded out. And I bring that up just to make the point again that we should not take this moment for granted because you know, we're talking about this right now, you know, in 10 years. We might have a basic income in the U.S. or it might be, you know, back to the 90s. So, you know, we really need to capitalize on the momentum we have
0: right now. Yeah, it's up to us to make sure this actually keeps going. Yeah. So, you've been listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. And if you haven't already, please head over to Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice and leave us a rating review. And also please do tell your friends. We we aim to reach as many people as possible to get them to be hearing about and thinking about basic income. So if you know folks who might be interested, please do let them know, and we'll talk to you next week.